the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. <laughs> Excuse me. Nehemiah chapter number 1. And uh, let's make a short prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the goodness of it. And I pray now, Father, that you help me as I give this sermon. And I pray that it would be profitable to the hearts of each person who's here. And uh, I don't know what everybody needs, but you do. And Father, I trust in your Holy Spirit to give the words that each person needs. And I pray that when they would leave here, they would walk out of here loving you better and uh, happier than ever to be a child of God. I pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. When you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a collection of historical narratives that lead us from the creation of the world all the way up to what's called the silent period when you get to the book of Malachi. Between Malachi and Matthew, there's about 500 years where there is no Scripture given. Now, they're called the silent years. It's not exactly true, the silent years. There was no inspired Scripture being given during that time period, but that doesn't mean that God was not at work in that intertestamental period. He certainly was at work. And then you have the book of Matthew appears at the end, at the, in, at the second half of the Bible, and tells us about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the coming of Jesus into the world has changed the world dramatically in ways that you and I probably can't get our mind around because we are living at the tail end of 2,000 years of Christian influence in the world. The only way you can really experience it probably is to go to one of these countries maybe uh, in the Middle East or to uh, uh, maybe, in this, maybe over in Saudi Arabia, over in that part of the world. In the Christian part of the world, our day, our work week has begun on Monday for a long time. We have Saturday, we have Sunday as a day we worship, and then Monday we go to work and we work Monday through Saturday, and then Sunday we fish, right? <laughs> Monday through Friday, and then you try to get some fishing in on Saturday, right? And then you go to church. Now, if you went to one of these countries, or to Indonesia, or to the UAE, you'll find that their work week is different. Their first day of the week of work is Sunday, because they've been steeped in a different kind of influence and culture than we have. It's hard for us to fathom how differently the world is without Christianity. So we have this definite Christian influence. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15 that everything written in the past in the Old Testament was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. They're written... The Old Testament is an, is an inexhaustible supply of encouraging stories, of encouraging stories. Now, does anybody here remember those little things called Aesop's Fables? Remember, I used to have, I used to have a little book of Aesop's Fables. And if you're here and you're, I'm not going to ask that question, but those Aesop's Fables, the only problem with those things is that Aesop's Fables are not true. They're fables. It's in the title, right? Aesop's Fables. Just like, remember a few years ago, uh, I was listening to a guy give a refutation of the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Has anybody read the Da Vinci Code? 
or the follow-up book, Inferno. Anybody? Those, those are fascinating books to read. And I heard one Christian apologist say, well, it's very easy to deal with all the accusations of Dan Brown when you look at the back cover. Because the back cover says, a work of fiction by Dan Brown. <laughs> so people shouldn't take it to heart. It is fiction. Now, the Old Testament is full of all kinds of stories that are not fiction. These really happen. You say, well, is that just, you, you say that just because it's in the Bible? No. I say it because there's tons of historical evidence to support it. There's historical records, the archaeological records. The Old Testament is verifiably true, verifiably true in big ways. Now, this morning, I want you to take a look at Nehemiah because I want to give you a sermon from Nehemiah. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you have to read it a little bit carefully. You shouldn't read the Old Testament as filled with imperatives or things that you should do because there are some things in the Old Testament that you should definitely not do. For instance, in the Old Testament, it would say you should never mix your fabrics, mix the the threads in your fabrics. So, for instance, uh, I have have clothes on. (laughs) And... uh, uh, I'm sure that my britches are a blend of uh, spandex and cotton <laughs> based on the amount of give they seem to have in them lately. Have you noticed how jeans, they have stretch jeans now? When I was a kid, I thought stretch jeans were just awful. But now, I like the fact that 36 is stretch. <laughs> and so I know I have these blended fabrics. Now, if you have, if you have a a coat, you'll have rayon, polyester, cotton, and linen blends. You'll find those things in the Old Testament. That's forbidden in the Old Testament, and uh, we, don't, we don't go by those things. In the Old Testament, you'll read uh, there's dietary laws in there, and one of the interesting things about the dietary law is in the Old Testament, it was against the law to eat a fish without a scale. It was unclean to eat a fish without a scale. Now, the best eaten fish I've ever encountered in my life is catfish. Chop it up, you know, flay it up, put it in chunks, roll it in some Zatarans, fish, fish mix. I don't even know what's in that stuff. You shake it around, drop it in a big old boiling cauldron of oil. <laughs> cook it until it floats, and then enjoy yourself. And then cook some hush puppies. You guys know what hush puppies are? Have some hush puppies along with it. Then put French fries in there and cook them too. That way it's all nice and greasy. Cut up some nice fresh, uh, some nice green tomatoes and roll them in cornmeal and fry them too. Just fry it all. <laughs> now, if we were following the Old Testament laws, we couldn't have any catfish because you had to be stuck eating these fish called walleye. <laughs> anyway. So I'd be careful reading the Old Testament. There's things in the Old Testament you shouldn't shouldn't take as imperatives, as things that you should do. But there are things you should obey in the Old Testament, but not everything that you read. So my basic approach to the Old Testament for myself personally is I read these narratives, like in Nehemiah, as as a book, as sources of lessons for me to learn, people to emulate, and people to not emulate. Examples to follow, 
Examples to not follow. The acts of the wise and the acts of the unwise. And when you come to the book of Nehemiah, you come to an interesting place in the history of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, because they have sinned against God over and over again, God would send prophets to them and say, guys, you need to turn back to the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. And they would, but then they would go back into idolatry and turn away from God. And finally, after centuries of repeated backslidings, God raised up foreign powers to take over the nation of Israel and to subjugate the people, to destroy their capital city, Jerusalem, and then deport their citizens to foreign countries so they could be re-educated, renamed, reprogrammed, and then hopefully redeployed as non-Jews in the future. And this lasted for about 70 years, this this program of of re-education. During that 70-year period, there is a man born whose name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he is a child of the captivity. Born in Persia, where he has been trained to serve the king of Persia. Now, we find him in Nehemiah chapter 1, holding a very important office, serving King Artaxerxes in the capital city, Zuza, in the middle of the 5th century. And his job is important. He is the king's cup bearer. He takes care of the king's wine. And the thing that he has to do is every day before the king could have a drink of wine, Nehemiah would have a drink for him. That way, the king could be assured that the wine was not poisoned. Because that was one of the the things they were afraid of in these primitive kingdoms, in the primitive world, is these uh, people would assassinate their leaders to try to take over. In fact, if you read the annals of history of that time period, you'll see you couldn't trust your mother, you couldn't trust your father, you couldn't trust your brother, and you sure couldn't trust your sister. So you had to be careful. You had to be careful. Nehemiah's job was every day before the king would drink his wine, Nehemiah would have to sample it. And if Nehemiah lived, then the king got to live. And this was his job, a very important job that he has. He has a brother here in chapter 1 whose name is Hanani. And Hanani, he seems to have had a special job of traveling throughout the kingdom checking on things for the king. Now, Hanani in chapter 1 makes a trip back to Israel to see how things are going in Israel. Now, Nehemiah and his brother Hanani, they've grown up in the captivity, and they've heard their whole life all about the homeland. All about the homeland. You might think of it like this, that, you know, in, in Michigan, there's a rich history of people coming up from the south to come and work in the automotive factories around Detroit and Flint and that whole southern Michigan area. And there are people that migrate up in Ohio is the same way. The hillbillies from West Virginia coming down out of the mountains with their solid work ethic and Christian values coming into the big cities of Akron and Cleveland, all the way to Columbus, coming down there to find job, jobs to work, to make a living for their families, to bring their families up. Some of those people stayed. And have made Michigan a much healthier and hardier place. Amen? Not the people from Ohio, though. They didn't come up here and make Michigan better. Oh, no. 
had to be people from further south or east. Now, um, back to what I was saying. So just like those people who probably, little boys and girls growing up in the Detroit area, Flint, working in the automotive industry, their parents working, I'm sure their parents would tell them about cool streams, blue skies, deer, and rabbit. And they would talk about the homeland and kind of make them hungry for it. They want to go back to those, to those beautiful mountains of West Virginia and Kentucky. And these boys, Nehemiah and Hananiah, they have grown up never having been to the land of their fathers, but hearing about it, hearing about how great it was, hearing the stories of the kings of Israel as they beheld Artaxerxes in all his glory. Those small boys growing up saying, this is a king, and their dad whispering to them on the side, listen, Artaxerxes, he's not a patch on King Uzziah. He's nothing compared to the radiant glory of King Solomon. He's nothing like David, the warrior king. You know what David did? David killed a giant with a slingshot. Who was Artaxerxes killed? You see, these boys growing up this way. Now, in chapter 1, Nehemiah is serving the king and his brother comes back from a special mission where he has gone back to Israel and seen the traditional capital city of the Jews, Jerusalem, and the news is not good. Look at verse chapter 1, verse 2. Hen and I, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had served the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what Nehemiah learns about his ancestral home is that the place is a wreck. The city is burned. The people are in trouble. They're poor. They're, they're victims of all their enemies. Things are not going well for them. And how does Nehemiah respond to this? He is saddened in his heart. Look at verse 4. As I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. Nehemiah is stirred by the situation in his ancestral homeland, and so he's praying. He's talking to God. What is going on here? He hears the report that Jerusalem is in a bad way. And as he thinks about this, he remembers the history of his people. And in verses 5 through 11, he prays about the condition of his people. And he remembers that the reason they have fallen upon hard times in Jerusalem and in Judah is because they transgressed and sinned against their God. The people of Israel turned away from the Lord and the Lord had told them, if you do not return to me, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. Look at verse number 8. This is in his prayer. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That's a prayer. He says, Lord, we know that we did wrong, but now we want to do right. We're turning back to you. Oh, Lord, hear our prayer. Restore to us our homeland. Restore to us. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you felt like you needed to be restored? Get back to where you used to be? Maybe you drifted away from the Lord. Maybe your heart, like Robert Robinson, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Have you gotten away from him and you've gotten yourself in a situation where you're calling out to him, Lord, please, I know I've done the wrong thing. I know I've believed the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, been the wrong way, but God, please be merciful to me. You say if I turn back to you, you'll have me. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Praying, crying out to God. That's what Nehemiah does. He prays and talks to God on, now this is what I think is most interesting. It's on behalf of other people. On behalf of not just himself, but on behalf of the nation at large. I find myself, when you, when you become a father, your whole life kind of gets, it gets, it changes a lot. And then as you get older as a father, it changes even more. And you think about your children in a different way. And I find myself praying for my kids in different kinds of ways. And I'll just, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this. I never told my kids this or Valerie this, but here's what I do. Is each night I pray, Lord, please forgive me for my sins because I sin. And I say, Lord, please forgive Valerie for her sins because Valerie sins. How do I know Valerie sins? Because I make her sin. <laughs> I say, Lord, forgive Valerie for her sins. I say, Lord, forgive Lauren for her sins. Please forgive Mitchell for his sins and Leslie for her sins and Lacey for her sins and Matthew for his sins. Lord, please forgive them. Wash them clean. Be merciful to them. I pray for them in that way because I know they're doing sins. I know who their father is. I know. I pray, Lord, please forgive them for their sins. Lord, please help them to be what they should. I'm praying for them. I don't beat them up about it. But I talk to God on their behalf. I want, them to, I want them to have their hearts turned towards Him. I want my heart to be turned towards God. Now what Nehemiah does here is he has this moment where he is, his heart is squeezed by the, by the news about how bad it is in Israel and he begins to pray. And like so many times, when you pray, you pray, then you experience delay. Because he prays and says, Lord, be merciful. Lord, turn back to us. Lord, help us. Now, in this, in this uh, chapter 1, you can pay attention to the dates if you want. Now, if you look at chapter 1, verse number 1, notice, now it happened in the month of Chislev. Now, if you have a study Bible, your study Bible might say in the margin what month that is. And it appears to be a month that would be like mid-November to December. 
So you could write it's November or December in the margin of your Bible. That's what Chislev is. It's the month of November or December. It's, it's kind of hard to be certain. The commentators, they put November and December, and so you could do the same. It's November, December. So this is when this event takes place. This is when he prays. In verse 11, Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer. He says, Lord, listen to me. Open your ears. And chapter 2 begins a little differently. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, Nisan is also a month of the year, and it's the month that corresponds with either March or April. It's either March or April. It could be March 20th through April 20th or some kind of thing like that. But there is a period of months here where it's four to five months. He prays and says, Lord, hear my prayer. But God doesn't begin to answer his prayer for about four or five months. Let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever prayed and had almost instantaneous answer from heaven? Ever had that happen to you? I have. Does it kind of freak you out when it happens? I have made some prayers, and then I'm like, boom. Lord answers it so fastly, so quickly, that I'm shocked. And I want to go, Lord, was that really you? Or did I just happen to time it just right? (laughs) And then, now, have you ever prayed, and it's taking a long time for God to answer? You've prayed and you ever prayed and it's taken. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you are you praying about something now that you've been praying about for a long time and it doesn't look like God's done a thing? <laughs> I have. But here, so it's pray, and he experiences delay. But then the Lord begins to work in the spring of the year. He's there, he's serving the king. He takes up the wine. He gives it to the king. He says, I had not been sad in his presence. And I think the authorized version says, I had not been sad in his presence heretofore. Which means he never had a sad face in the presence of the king. Don't you wish all employees would be like that? (laughs) Never sad faced. But the king notices that Nehemiah looks sad. And so he says, Nehemiah. Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of, this is nothing but sadness of heart. The king can tell that something is off with Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, when, he, when the king, he says, then I was very much afraid, verse 2. He's afraid. Have you ever ever had that experience where you're wearing your feelings on your face and somebody says, hey, what's wrong? You're like, wait a minute, what do you mean what's wrong? And there's a little bit of fear. Now, Nehemiah doesn't want to tell the king what's on his heart because he doesn't know how the king's going to react to it. What Nehemiah is burdened about is the restoration of a kingdom, of a city that the king and his forefathers had destroyed as an act of war. How is the king going to feel if I, when I tell him that I'm burdened because one of his enemies is not doing too well. I want his enemy to be restored. That's, that, that'd, be like, that'd be like us praying that Washington had played a better football game last week. Right? I mean, how many of you are glad that Michigan 
didn't, didn't lose a game and win a national championship. If you're happy about that, say amen. Well, the rest of you can leave. <laughs> I mean, it'd be just like that, like pray, it just doesn't seem right. What if, what if Coach Harbaugh walked into the locker room and saw one of his coaches crying after the game? What's wrong, man? How come you're sad? Oh, I just was hoping Washington would beat us. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think old Jim would do? Well, he'd probably yeah, he'd say, you're out of here, buddy. So Nehemiah is afraid, but he goes ahead and speaks. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Why shouldn't I be sad, king? Things are not good back in my ancestral home. Jerusalem is tore up. And then the king says, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this is a conversation where Nehemiah is talking to the king, and this, I prayed to the God of heaven, is one of those praying while talking. You ever done that? You're, you're talking to somebody, and in your mind you say, Oh Lord, please help me say the right thing. Oh Lord, help me to do the right thing. I'm not sure what to say, how to be, how to act here. Lord, please help me. Nehemiah is having a conversation and praying at the same time. And he says, and the king does something crazy. He said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servants found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I guess the Lord led Nehemiah to pray big, to ask big, and says, I want to go back and rebuild my home city. And you know what happens? The king says, okay. The king says, go back and rebuild that city. And basically... He says, here's a checkbook to take with you to pay for all the rebuilding. What a thing. What a crazy thing. Now, Nehemiah, this has to be like the high point of his life. Have you ever had a high point in your life where you think, it just ain't going to get no better than this? You haven't? A high point in life. And he goes back to begin this work. And that's what I want to talk to you about now for the next two hours, okay? <laughs> Nehemiah, the Lord, hears his prayer. And he goes back, makes the journey back to Jerusalem, and he begins to rebuild. And that's in chapter, that's in chapter 2, part of chapter 3 and chapter 4. He starts to rebuild. Now, when you read the Bible, you'll see the act of rebuilding takes place a lot. The first one that leaps into my mind is Abraham. He builds an altar to worship the Lord. And then Abraham goes to a place he shouldn't go and does the thing he shouldn't do. And while he's there, he realizes he needs to go back to God. So he goes back to where he had built an altar before. And the Bible says he rebuilt the altar. And call upon the Lord there. You're rebuilding in your, in your life a lot. You have to rebuild in your life a lot. Because life brings a lot of shakeups to you. And can knock down the walls of your life. 
Sometimes it's spiritually. I've been a Christian for a long time, and, I, and, I, and I've had to rebuild my spiritual life more than once because you fall off the wagon spiritually. You get away from the Lord, and you've got to go back, and you've got to build those walls back again. You've got to re-erect the altar of devotion to God. Sometimes people get out of the habit of going to church. This, this, is, this is so common. As a pastor in my life, I've seen every time a young couple has a baby, I, I almost hate for them to be having a baby. Because there ain't nothing that messes up your life like having a baby. We had five of them. And your whole life gets rearranged when you have a baby. Because you're going to get less sleep. Valerie was talking about this. To, I think to Lacey or to Leslie about how tired she was when we had Lauren. That's our, first, that's our oldest daughter. When Lauren was born, that girl, she would sleep anywhere but a house. <laughs> She'd sleep anytime but nighttime. I can remember us carrying her around, trying to get her to go to sleep. And you know, the, the, the old mean parents would say, just let her cry it out. This girl had Basham and Courtney stubbornness. I mean, she wouldn't cry it out. She would bawl and bawl. I, mean, I, I remember walking around with her, you know, hush, little baby, don't you cry. Whatever, whatever I'm going to say to you, you know, <laughs> hush, uh, daddy's going to buy you a diamond ring. And if that diamond ring don't shine, daddy's going to buy you a gold mine. And, all this. And, trying to, and I remember trying to lay down the floor to get, you know, oh, she's asleep. I'm going to sit in a chair now. And try to get still and go to sleep myself. And she just wouldn't do it. Tired. Tired. And I can remember going to, we were going to church. It was hard to go to church. We're tired. You've been up all night with the baby. Finally, you get to church and they got a nursery. Now, listen, my friends, there are some people in this town who the only break they're really going to get from their kid is when they come to church here. And we ought to have the nursery ready for them, right? that we can hand off their little bundle of joy and get some peace for 90 minutes. And those people will ask for longer sermons. (laughs) I can remember going to church and hand off that baby to the nursery. And we could go sit down in the church service, sit down there. And the minute we would get still and hear some boring, dull, dry old preacher get in the pulpit, that's how they all sound when you're tired. (laughs) And it's hard to stay awake. Easy, just to, the only time that kid would want to sleep probably is Sunday morning. I mean, it can disrupt your life. People get out of church. They get out of the habit of going to church. My dad used to talk about it like that. He'd say, going to church is a habit. I've been going to church on Sunday morning my whole life. And when I'm somewhere and I don't go to church on Sunday morning, guess what I feel? I feel kind of out of sorts. I feel kind of out of whack, out of my routine, out of my norms. But you stay out long enough. You'll get totally out of the habit of going to church. So you have to rebuild your life. You're going to find yourself rebuilding a lot in the Bible. You're going to see it in the Bible, and you're going to find yourself doing it fairly often too. I just want to ask you this question before we go any further. And you answer it in the council hall of your own heart. Do you need to rebuild anything in your life today? Are you really where you ought to be with the Lord? Are you really, are you really where you should be? Maybe you say, well, I'm here, so obviously I don't need to rebuild too much. 
Well, let me ask you another question. Are the walls cracking a little bit? Is stuff starting to fall off? Are the shingles starting to slide off the roof? (laughs) Do you need to cut the grass in the yard? I mean, just think about your own spiritual condition. Do you need to fix up anything in your life? Is there anything you need to take care of? You got a lot of sins in your life that you've been letting just hang around? And my friends, listen, sin, I hate to use all these dumb illustrations, but I don't know a better way to do it. Sin has a way of caking up on the inside of you. Caking up. When I was a kid, my parents, we we did not have a shower. We had a bathtub. And my brother would take a bath. And I would take a bath. And my mom would come out and she'd say, one of you boys get in there and wipe that ring out of the bathtub. I never noticed the ring. My brother never noticed the ring. My dad never noticed the ring. My mom always noticed the ring around the bathtub. And my mom, I would say, Mom, well, you know, you clean the bathroom on Saturday. Why don't you just get it? These are not the things you say to your mother. (laughs) And really, she didn't blow a gasket or anything. She just said, because it's easier to wipe it out when it's fresh. (laughs) While the muck is still soft... Wipe it out. And my friends, here's what happens to us, is is we get all junked up with sin. We don't confess our sins. When one sin becomes another sin and another sin and another sin, and next thing you know, you got a big old ring around the tub. you got a stain of sin. And you're going to get to the place where you're going to say, I need to get that out of my life. And instead of just being able to use a damp cloth, It's going to take one of those green scrubbers and some Comet. Some elbow grease. Maybe a a mini sandblaster. (laughs) It's going to take some real effort to get those sins out of there. Because they root down, they get deeper. You see, you got to rebuild somewhere. Is there anything you need to take care of? You say, who are you talking to? Well, I can say, first of all, I'm talking to myself. Because I find myself getting kind of wooly sometimes. And I need a haircut. I need a trim. I need to get rebuilt. Okay? Now, if you have things you need to fix in your life, just start working on them. Now, here's what the devil will do. The devil will come along and he'll say, Now, look, you're too far gone. It's too big of a job to get that stuff fixed up. He'll say it's too far gone. My dad... He bought a 1953 Chevy truck out of a pasture with trees growing through it. He walked out there. It was, remember on the 53 Chevy, they had one had five windows. had a windshield, two side windows, a back window, and two corner windows. Five-window truck. I don't, my dad said they're the greatest things in sliced bread. He saw it in a field. He took my mom to look at it. My mom saw this rusted heap and she said he's like what do you think and she said about what he said look at that it's a five window coupe still got the motor original transmission original wheels the frame is solid she says where's the bed 
She just saw a she just saw a pile of junk. But my dad said, he saw treasure. Treasure. And so you know what my dad did? My mom, she said, well, Terry, if you buy that truck, you've got to buy me a ring. And so dad bought the truck and bought my mom a ring. And then, got the, then he brought that big pile of junk home. And my dad went right out there, and he got that thing running that day. The motor was still there. He, he worked on the carburetor, you know, poured Marvel's mystery oil down in there and got that motor broke loose, and he got it running. I mean, my mom looked at it and said, that's a pile of junk. My dad looked at it and said, nope, that is treasure in the making. Now, long story short was my dad ran out of money because that's what happens with those kind of things. <laughs> and he ended up selling it. But my friends... The devil wants you to think that you're not worth rebuilding. He wants you to think that you're a total waste. He wants you to think that you're no good. And that's not true. That's not true at all. God can make you new. And you may be the world's worst Christian, and you've really just messed up your Christian life. The devil will say, you are too far gone. That's a lie. God will take you and fix you up. God will have you. It may it, it, anyway. Am I making I'm trying to get am I making that clear to you? I hope I am. Let's move ahead, okay? How do you start with this kind of stuff? Well, to get this rebuilding underway, you have to do what Nehemiah did. He starts with confession. He confesses sins to God. Confesses his sins to God. At some point, you've got to come clean with God about this stuff. Confession to God. And my friends, you don't have to confess to me, although it probably would make some of you feel better to unburden it on the back of somebody else. There's something about, there's something about that that is attractive, to lay it on somebody else. And God has given us Jesus Christ Lay it on Christ. Go to Christ and say, Lord, forgive me. I've done a lot of things. Just come clean with God. Have you ever gotten alone in prayer and started confessing sins to God? You know, to me, it is such a, an incredible spiritual exercise to confess my sins out loud in the air. Because it's almost like they become realer when I say them out loud. Confess those sins to God. Confession is to admit wrong. To admit wrong. Confess your sins to God. That's what Nehemiah does. He confesses the sins of his people to God. And then he claims the promises of God. He says, Lord, here are our sins, and here's what you said you will do if we come back to you. And he rehearses the promises of God. God will help you rebuild. I'm going to tell you three things, three tools God's given you to help you to rebuild your life. Number one is giving you Scripture. I couldn't tell this story this way if I didn't have it in the Bible to tell you from. Use Scripture. It's really sad how many Christians don't read the Bible at all. 
Now look, sometimes, Christ, sometimes, sometimes preachers make it harder on people than it ought to be. You know, you don't have to read the Bible. Let me say it. Don't read the Bible. How can I say this? Read the Bible for joy. Read the Bible for fun. You say, what do you mean read the Bible for fun? I mean, quit trying to become the king of Bible trivia. Quit trying to figure out every kind of ridiculous nuance that's in the Bible. Quit, don't, 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 try, don't, don't say, well, I got I to gotta get all these books and all those. I got to really get deep. My friend, listen, just read the Bible. Praise what David said, Psalm 118. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy word. And then read the Bible and read it for fun. You know, how many, how many, you know how many times I've read First and Second Samuel? I don't even know. Great stuff to read. Genesis, love to read it. Leviticus, don't love to read it. <laughs> Deuteronomy, only part of it. Read the Bible for fun. Find parts of it that really ring the bell of your heart and spend time with God's Word. You say, well, you say the Bible, you got, we, all, we all like Bible reading schedules and going through the Bible in a year. I use one myself. But listen, don't let that thing wreck your vibe. Read the Bible. The second tool you got is prayer. Most Christians don't pray. Most Christians don't pray because they make prayer too complex. Pray and talk to God. That's all you got to do. You get up tomorrow morning, you're going to work. While you're driving, you say, Lord, I'm going down this job. I hate my boss. I hate my coworkers. I hate my work. I hate my salary. I hate my desk. Please help me today to not hate it quite as bad. Now, that's a normal kind of prayer, in my opinion. That's the kind of prayer I pray every Sunday on my way. <laughs> I'm saying to you, just pray. Just talk to God. You can talk to God anywhere, anytime. How many of you guys got a cell phone? Got a cell phone? Now, I find people on their phones. I'm on my phone all the time, too, just like you guys are. But you know what? I'll, I'll text people. And, you know, I know who I can text late, who I can text early, that kind of stuff. Well, God's phone is always on. It's always on. Just talk to God. Pray. Say, Lord, I don't. Just talk to him about whatever it is. Just talk to him. Prayer is talking to God. Just pray. Don't, don't make it too complex. Just pray. Talk to God. And you'll find God will help you. He'll minister to you. And He'll answer prayers for you. God will do it. The third thing is the local church. The local church will help you rebuild your life. Because if you're on this side of the church, look at these people. See them? Now, if you're on this side, look at those people. Now, you're surrounded by people who are rebuilders. They've been rebuilding their own lives and helping other people rebuild their lives. That's what we do. Helping one another. Trying to rebuild each other and lift one another up. Now, I don't know every burden in this room, but I know that many of you share burdens one with another. And you help one another. You encourage one another. Some of you guys have given each other the talk. 
you've, you've, had a, you've had a serious conversation with them about something, something they need to do, something they need to watch out for. You've had serious conversations with one another because you love one another. The local church is such a great place. You don't have to get along with everybody in the church the same. I mean, some people here root for the Spartans. <laughs> you don't have to get along with everybody the same, but you can find friendships here and relationships here that will help you to rebuild your life. You need the local church. God's given it to you. Now, look, this, I think this is worth thinking about, and I'm going to be done. I have no watch, so. The first thing is, it looks like the Bible ain't going anywhere. Looks like prayer ain't going anywhere. And looks like the church isn't going anywhere. All you and I need to just take advantage of those things that God's given us to help us to rebuild our lives. Now, once you start rebuilding, a couple things are going to happen. The first thing is, if you look in chapter 4, you'll find there's ridicule. Once Nehemiah starts rebuilding the walls, Sanballat and Tobiah, they come over and they say, Hey, Nehemiah, so you're going to rebuild that junk hole over there? The Bible says they jeered, they ridiculed, they mocked him. Oh, sometimes that's what the devil does. The devil says, you can't, you can't go overcome that. You can't get back on your feet. And sometimes it'll be people that you know. They'll ridicule you. When I was a, when I was a teenager, I had a little girlfriend. And uh, her and her mom and her sisters, they all came to church. But their dad didn't go to church. And every time they would get up to go to church, their dad would laugh at them and mock them and just belittle them for wasting their time going to church. He, just, he would just give them a hard time. That was their dad doing that. Just mocked them. Would roll them the floor. This is what you do at your church. He'd roll back and forth and laugh and just mocked them. And that's, that was a father and a husband doing that. And mom and the kids, they just would get up and get in the car and go to church and go home and She'd still cook his lunch, and just every time, that's how it was. Sometimes it's people who know you who'll give you a hard time, who'll try to stop you from doing what's right. You're going to face ridicule. You're going to face it. What should you do in the face of ridicule? Just keep going. Just keep going. The second thing you face, you face is, organized, is organized resistance, because in chapter 4, Sambala and Tobiah, when they realized they couldn't laugh them, laugh at them and mock them and stop them from working. They decide we got to get organized. And we got to have a plan. Let's attack them. And you can see that. That they realize that Nehemiah and his guys, they have to, they have to take precautions and go forward. It's a, it's a great story about rebuilding. If you're trying to rebuild your life, rebuild something in your life, take the book of Nehemiah and read it as an example how to rebuild your life. And if you need somebody to talk to about rebuilding here in this church, as people will be glad to talk to you and help you with it. Now, the last thing I want to say to you is I've been talking to you about rebuilding your life as a Christian. But you can't rebuild your life as a Christian until you become a Christian.
until you become a Christian. And the only way you can become a Christian is to admit that you're unrighteous, that you're a sinner. And then ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. <coughs> Believe in Him. Believe that He rose from the dead. Entrust yourself to Christ. You know, here at the church, we have a membership application to join the church, but we don't have a membership application to become a Christian. <laughs> it's easier to become a Christian than it is a member of this church. Amen? <laughs> it's easy to become a Christian. Put your faith in Christ. Call upon Him and He'll save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Christ and He'll save you. Now let's make a prayer together and then go home and shovel some snow, all right? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and our faith you'd help us to be rebuilding. Lord, if some of us, some of us we... There could be people here whose lives, they just got done rebuilding and it's, they got it fixed up. Oh, Lord, I pray that you help them to maintain, keep it going. And Lord, for those of us who are rebuilding, help us, Lord. Give us hope. Help us to see through Nehemiah's eyes that the walls can be rebuilt, the city can be vibrant again. Help us to have hope that our lives can be filled with joy again. Help us, Lord, to look to you. And Father, I pray for that person who is here, who maybe is not a Christian. I pray that you would open their heart up, give them eyes to see and ears to hear that they can believe on Christ as their Savior. And Lord, I ask these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.